If you have your uh, Bible with you, how about if you open it up to Acts chapter 23. If you didn't bring one with you, you're going to find them in the racks right around you. And uh, you can follow along on the screen. If you don't own a Bible, we have free Bibles in the back, and you can pick one up when you leave on your way out today. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word. Make sure you have a Bible. It's the best thing you can own. What we're about to do, um, whether you're familiar with the Bible or not, what we're about to do is not normal, all right? Um, if you're new to New Hope, we never take on a chapter and a half in one particular morning, right? Uh, so what we're about to do is not normal, but this story is not normal. It's a very unusual setting in which we left Paul off in chapter 11 last week, or chapter 23, verse 11, and, and we saw him complete his trial before the Supreme Court, and then Jesus visited him in the evening. Very specifically, you're going to see why this morning, because Paul really needed encouragement so here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a broad overview, kind of like from the 30,000-foot view, intentionally leaving parts out, not really breaking the verses down like we normally do because of the way the story flows. So just to catch you up to speed, if you're not very familiar with Paul, um, Acts chapter 9, God speaks specifically about Paul. And, and so Jesus is talking about him, and he says this in Acts 9.15, Paul, he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings. Now that sounds cool, right? Get to stand before kings in their palaces and talk about God, and he's chosen specifically by God? That, that'd be really cool until you go to verse 16. Verse 15 is promising. Verse 16, not so much. Look at this. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. What an incredible dichotomy. Have we seen Paul suffer throughout the book of Acts? Absolutely. It, fulfillment of everything that God said. Paul did exactly what God had called him to do. Well, what you're going to get to see him do today is he's going to go before kings. This is the beginning of that story. It's not new to us that he's in danger. He's been in danger from the very beginning. We saw it in Acts chapter 9. He got saved. He went into Damascus. He began talking about Jesus. And all of a sudden, he's a threat Reminding us, and this will frame our story this morning, when you commit to Jesus, there is a cost, isn't there, church? There's a cost to following Jesus. For some of you, it's cost relationships. Individuals whom you used to hang with, they're like, man, I'm not there. It, it, it can cost you jobs. It can cost you financial opportunities. There's all kinds of things that perhaps in a previous life you might have been part of that as a Christ follower, you're not part of it. There's a cost to following Jesus. When you see Jesus say to Paul in verse 23 of chapter 9, you're going to bear my name before kings, well, you may not know this, but when it was said to Paul was 23 years earlier than what we see this morning, 23 years before he gets to actually stand before kings. And you'll see the reason that Jesus had to encourage him because what you're about to see is spiritual warfare. Let's go right into the story. Acts chapter 23 and verse 12 is where we're going to pick up this morning. It says this, when it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under an oath saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. Verse 13, there were more than 40 men who formed this plot. So the threat is real. They're never going to eat, they're never going to drink again until Paul is dead. So how intimidating must Paul be? You're going to see in just a little bit that the entire Supreme Court is going to leave Jerusalem and they're going to go all the way down to Caesarea to make sure that they're part of the trial that Paul's going to have. Verse 14 says this, They came to the chief priest and the elders and said, 
We have bound ourselves under a solemn oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. You can go on to read verse 15 yourself, but I'm going to stop right there. So here's what's going on. Dumb and dumber have just hatched a plot, okay? And they have hatched a plot that involves the Sanhedrin. They want to draw the Supreme Court into their plan. This is an exceptionally strong oath. The word that's used in the Greek language is anathematizo. An anathema is a curse. So they've taken a curse upon themselves, and it sounds like this. May I be cursed in this life and damned in the next life if I don't cause Paul to die by my hand. Uh, Just a word of warning, be very careful about what you swear to, right? Especially if you're going against God's chosen instrument. They're saying not only will we not eat in this life, we want to be damned in the next life if we don't carry this out. This goes under the category of it seemed like a good idea, right? Because they can't carry it out. You wonder if they died of hunger or stupidity first. I don't know what comes along, but humiliation because clearly the vow cannot be fulfilled. What do you do when the guy you want to be killing is carried away by Rome? under heavy Roman guard with 470 Roman soldiers. Go with me to the next verse, verse 16. But the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, and he came and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Lead this young man to the commander, for he has something to report to him. Very little is known of Paul's family. Matter of fact, this is the only passage in Scripture where you find specific details that he had a sister and a nephew. And how the nephew finds out about the plot, we don't know. Anybody's guess is as good as mine. But they learn about it. Now, prisoners of really high rank under Roman authority, especially if they had Roman citizenship, they were allowed visitors, great liberty for visitors to come in and out. So this accessibility that you see in the passage is not unusual. So Paul's got considerable standing. The the Romans understand who he is and how valuable he is. So the centurion is called over by Paul. And the centurion is not even told why. He's just told, you go take this kid to see the commander. And the centurion obeys what Paul has asked him to do. Now, verse 20 and verse 21 are kind of a repeat of verse 12 through 15. So go with me to verse 18 and just look at the the brief part of it. It says in verse 18, so he took him and led him to the commander. And when the young man comes before the commander, he tells him everything that he's heard, all the background of the details. Verse 22 So the commander let the young man go, instructing him, tell no one that you have notified me of these things. Now the threat is real. Lysias, the commander of the Roman cohort, completely understands it's a real threat. He loses no time whatsoever. He's going to send Paul to Caesarea, the seat of the Roman government. The Jews have charged him with a capital crime. They're saying what he has done is worthy of death. Only the Roman procurator, the governor of Rome, can actually decide whether or not there's a death sentence to be carried out. So verse 23, and he called, this is the commander again, and he called to him two of the centurions and said, get 200 soldiers ready by the third hour of the night to proceed to Caesarea with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. They were also to provide mounts to put Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. So a military escort at 9 o'clock at night, and they're supposed to go as covertly as possible. 200-foot soldiers, 70 cavalrymen, 200 spearmen, 470 soldiers of Rome, nearly half the troops of the Roman cohort. And Paul's going to be put on horseback. 
And they're being told to make it there as quickly as they can. Well, to make it in one night would be impossible. It'd be a grueling march for the foot soldiers. This is a 65-mile journey, and they're leaving at 9 o'clock at night, so they make it halfway. They make it to a city called Antipatris, and there they rest. About 3 in the morning, they show up, and, and they begin to understand, we're not going to go further. Are, are you grasping the urgency that this commander is feeling for Paul's life? 470 soldiers? Why so hostile? If you're not familiar with the Bible, you might be looking at this and thinking, why are they trying to take Paul out? He's committed no offense against them that we can see. Here's his aggressive action and his only aggressive action. His aggressive action has been to proclaim Jesus loudly. And if you're asking yourself, why are they so hostile against him for that? Here's the answer, church. Look with me on the screen. This is from God's own word. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. Do you notice God's in small g, so you know it's talking about Satan. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, big G. God of this world, Satan. God of eternity, God the Father. God of this world is against God the Father. These individuals are so deceived, they're unable to discern the truth, and they're swept up in Satan's rebellion. So what is it that takes away blindness? If you're not familiar with the Bible, you might be looking at it and saying, well, they can't see the light of the glory of Christ. What fixes that? Jesus himself answered that. You're going to see it in Acts 26 when we get there, but let me take you there for just a moment. Acts 26, verse 18. This is Jesus talking, and he says the thing that takes away the blindness is the gospel. The Holy Spirit working through the gospel, he says, the gospel opens their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. You know what this means for you, church? That means that if this morning, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you can grasp who Jesus is, if you understand what he's done and the forgiveness of sins that comes through him, Praise God, because you're no longer blind. There was a time when we were all living in darkness. I came to Christ at age 14. Prior to that, Scripture would say very clearly, Mark, there was a time when you were in darkness. Praise God. I can see. Why can I see? Because God revealed it through the gospel. He made it very, very clear. He allowed the Holy Spirit to come along and take away those blindness. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, let me go up to a 100,000-foot view for just a moment. The entire outworking of the Old Testament and the New Testament is a series of Satan's attempts to destroy Jesus. He attempts in the Old Testament to destroy Jesus' nation, the nation he would come from by taking out Israel. He attempts to destroy Jesus' lineage. And when you come to the New Testament, he attempts to take out Jesus himself. It's a series of move, counter moves. God moves, Satan has a counter move. God moves, Satan has a counter move. But we understand as believers in Jesus Christ that Satan was ultimately absolutely defeated at the cross and at the resurrection. Right, church? Ultimately, Satan was defeated. So since the defeat, his strategy has had to change. He's gone for an alternate effort, and his alternate effort is this, to silence those of us who belong to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. 
So these individuals that you're reading about here, when you're looking at them and saying, why are they so hostile? What you're seeing is they're blind to who Jesus is, and they are the plotters who have become the pawns of Satan. Satan is using them to accomplish his goal. And what's his goal? To kill the voice of Jesus on planet Earth. That's Satan's strategy. Stop Christians from talking about who Jesus is. Now, let's jump back into the story because in verse 25, you're going to see the commander write a letter. What we understand is the last thing the commander of a Roman-occupied city, meaning Jerusalem, the last thing a Roman commander wants is a riot on his watch. And he has 40 suicide bombers in his city. You think in 2016? Okay, we, we got 40 individuals who have just sworn their life to say, we are willing to die to take out that voice of Jesus. We're going to do whatever is necessary to stop this guy from talking about Jesus. So this Roman commander has 40 suicide bombers in his town, and the, is, the issue is all too real to him. So Lysias quickly drafts an official letter to the governor. A letter had to be going before Paul because that's what allowed the transfer of a prisoner from one city to the next. So we go to verse 25. Verse 25, and he wrote a letter having this form. Claudius Lysias, that's the name of the commander, to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. When this man was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them, I came up to them with the troops and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. <laughs> He's making himself sound pretty good, right? We'll come back to that in just a minute. So Felix is the governor. He's right in saying that. He uses the really polite title saying, Your Excellency, and then he begins to stretch the truth to his own advantage. See, we already know that Lysias seized Paul and put him in chains, right? We already know that he had no idea that Paul was a Roman citizen. He had no idea when he arrested him and put him in jail. And do you notice he makes no mention of the fact whatsoever that he almost scourged Paul? See, he conveniently leaves all of that out. But when you come to verse 29, you see a factual truth. Look with me at the excerpt on the screen. This man is under no accusation deserving death. He's under no accusation deserving death or imprisonment. This is an official report. This is the commander of a Roman cohort writing to the governor of Rome saying this man does not deserve to die. He's flatly stating it out. That statement does not change even when Paul goes to stand before Caesar himself. No official can give a reason why Paul should die. So in verse 30, is a little detail. I didn't put it on the screen, but in the detail it says that that same commander told the accusers of Paul, they better show up in, in, in Caesarea also. They're going to be there for the trial. So let's go on to verse 31. So the soldiers, in accordance with their orders, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. Uh, Antipatris is this military outpost, something that King Herod had built. Halfway, I told you, it's like 60 miles to Caesarea. They stop halfway. The foot soldiers returned to Jerusalem, but the cavalry and the spearmen, they continued to accompany Paul all the way to present him to Claudius Felix, the procurator of Rome. He rules from 52 A.D. to 59 A.D., and this guy has a bad attitude, and people do not like him. He's incredibly ambitious. He hoes his really high position in the Roman government to his brother because his brother serves at Caesar Claudius's right hand. And Caesar Claudius promoted Felix to this position of procurator over all of Judea. 
This is a guy who tends to be totally lacking in any sympathy for the Jews whatsoever. One detail history tells us about him extra-biblically is that he has three wives. His very first wife is the granddaughter of Mark Anthony and Cleopatra. His third wife you're going to learn about in just a minute. Her name is Drusilla. Let's move back into the story, and it says this in verse 34. When he had read it, he asked from what province he was, meaning Paul, and when he, meaning Felix, learned that he was from Cilicia, he's <clears throat> he said, I will give you a hearing after your accusers arrive also, giving orders for him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. So Felix's question is just about Paul's origins, whether or not he has jurisdiction over this guy's life. So Paul's going to be confined to this place that was built by Herod to hold him in Roman headquarters. Verse 1 of chapter 24. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders with an attorney named Tertullus, and they brought charges to the governor against Paul. So the accusing party is made up of some really interesting individuals. Do you notice the names mentioned? Ananias and the elders. Who is that? That's the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court has been willing to make a journey 65 miles, first century, remember, so these guys are doing a horseback thing, 65 miles to go and prosecute Paul, and they bring with them an attorney who is fully skilled in Roman legal proceedings. Verse 2, after Paul had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying to the governor, since we have through you attained much peace... And since by your providence reforms are being carried out for this nation, we acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness, gag me with a spoon, right? <laughs> gag on the fake accolades. He's trying to win over his judge because you can't win the case if you don't have the judge on your side, right? So it's false flattery here. Stretches the truth way out. He says, Felix, you brought peace. Not true. He didn't bring any peace. He says, you brought reforms. Not true. The Jewish nation hated his guts. They didn't like him. He made life miserable for the Jews. But this attorney is very intelligent. He knows that Romans, especially procurators, governors, and Caesar himself, really, really, really like to be thought of as benevolent. As a matter of fact, if, if you bring up some images of Roman coins that have been unearthed by archaeologists, you typically find the word in the Greek language, benevolent, at the bottom of the coin. They really like to be thought of that way. So he begins talking about him as, you've got great foresight, and the Jews in every part of our nation, they welcome your rule. Not true. So let's go into verse 4, but that I may not weary you any further, I beg you grant us by your kindness a brief hearing. Verse 5. For we have found this man a real pest and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world. Verse 6, 7, and 8 is just his series of accusations, and I'm, I'm not going to even honor it by going into it. You can read it later yourself, but here's the deal. There's three formal charges that he's bringing up against him. The first one is Paul's a pest. Immediately you're thinking, what, like a mosquito? What is he calling him? Is this name calling? No, pest is the word plague in the Greek language. This guy brings decay. He brings disaster. He brings trouble every place he goes. Now, at first glance, you're looking at it and thinking, that's ridiculous. It's like school ground name calling. Why is he doing that? This is a really calculated move, very calculated. He's had five days to prepare his court case. 
And then he shows up with the Supreme Court and they're presenting an argument. Here's why it's a calculated move. Charging Paul with causing trouble everywhere is an attempt to broaden the scope, saying every place this guy goes, he brings dissension. It's a charge of sedition and the Roman government took charges of sedition very, very seriously. So if Felix has been bored with this trial up to this point and thinking this is just another court case, why do I have to hear it? All of a sudden, his ears are peaked. He's sitting up a little taller in his chair and listening a little more carefully because his entire rule, his jurisdiction over all of Judea has been putting out one fire after another of riot after riot after riot. So he's going to pay very close to attention, very close attention to this charge of sedition. The second charge follows it up. It's a variation of the same thing. This guy's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He's an instigator. Now that's certainly true. Paul is a leader of Christians. But notice what he's done. He's linked insurrection with Christianity. It's no longer just about Paul. Paul is one of the main collaborators. The ramifications for this all of a sudden become very, very clear. This is no slouch of an attorney. Exactly what he's doing here is bringing Paul in to try and make the charges stick so that if the whole Christian community is thought of being dangerous to the throne, dangerous to the empire, all of a sudden there's a reason to stop all of Christianity. So what he's doing is not just going after Paul, he's going after the jugular. He wants to take Christianity out of the system entirely. And the third charge is another matter entirely, but it's very clever. He's saying Paul violated the temple. He understands Roman law, and Roman law handed off to the Jews the right to rule over their own temple, that they could determine whether or not their temple had been violated. So when he says this man violated the temple, he's saying, you, Felix, need to turn Paul back over to us so that the Supreme Court can decide whether or not this man will live or die. He understands the court system really well. And if he can substantiate these charges, it's going to obligate Felix to take action against Paul. Verse 9, the Jews also joined in the attack. That means all those who came from the Supreme Court that are standing in the room. Now, the governors heard all this. And he comes to verse 10, and we see that all he does is turn to Paul, and he nods. Verse 10 starts out this way. When the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul responded, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense, since you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. Neither in the temple nor in the synagogues, this is verse 12, nor in the city itself did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot, nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me. So Paul's answering the very same three charges they brought back. The charge of insurrection, hey, I just showed up in town 12 days ago. I've only been in Jerusalem for a little bit more than a week. There's been no history of inciting the Jews I'm only in town to worship. So they can't prove things to you. The accusers cannot give you any proof whatsoever that I've done something wrong that will stand up in court. Verse 14, but this I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men cherish themselves 
that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. See, Paul sees an opportunity here, church. He sees an opportunity to deliver a mini-sermon, right? So all of a sudden, he's shifting from defense posture into offense posture. He recognizes there's an open door, and you open that door up for Paul, and he's going to step through it every single time. He's saying believing in Jesus is no deviant offshoot. It's the very center of God's purposes. They believe in the Old Testament. I believe in the Old Testament. They believe in the hope of the resurrection. I believe in the hope of the resurrection. See, Paul is not about to miss an opportunity. Even the Gentiles in the courtroom, even those who are not Jewish that don't understand what's going on, who might not comprehend the resurrection, they have some idea of a coming judgment. That's why Paul links in verse 15 the resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked, meaning there's going to be a judgment of those individuals. Somehow, Paul always manages to get to the resurrection, does he not? It's the high point of his witness. Here's his point. We believe the same Bible. We worship the same God. We have the same hope of a resurrection. Go with me to verse 16. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. Verse 17 is his counter-argument. Now, after several years, because he's been out of town, right? Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings in which they found me occupied in the temple. But there were some Jews from Asia, notice that break, it's really important, verse 19, who ought to have been present before you and to make an accusation. So Paul's responding to the third charge that he violated the temple, right? He desecrated it. The absence of the Asian Jews to bring the accusation against him comes as no surprise if you've been part of the study. Because Dr. Luke said their accusations were completely unfounded. They just surmised some things. So Paul is pretty ticked, right? When you come to, to verse 19, you see the break in his sentence. Dr. Luke is recording exactly the things that Paul said. And Paul is really angry, so he breaks off mid-sentence. They should have been here. That's his attitude here. He has the right to face his accusers. So this attorney, Tertullus, who has represented the Supreme Court, has made a critical error. The attorney made an accusation with the absence of witnesses in the room, and it's a serious breach of court protocol. And because of the lack of supporting evidence, the witnesses don't show up. So score legal point for Paul, right? And Felix knows it. And he knows these court proceedings are completely awash. So Paul makes it clear what's really going on here. The real issue is the same real issue that you face every day. It's the resurrection. It's the resurrection of Jesus. The reason that you came to Christ in the first place, church, is because Jesus rose from the dead. If he was still in the ground, he couldn't forgive your sins, could he? If, if he didn't rise from the dead, there'd be no forgiveness. There'd be no justification. God would have not accepted the sacrifice. So the issue Paul's really on trial for is the resurrection. Verse 20 says this, Or else let these men themselves tell what misdeed they found, other than for this one statement which I shouted out, for the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today. See, he just demonstrated all the accusations are completely bogus. 
But instead of stopping there, I got to really appreciate Paul. He advances. Instead of stopping there, he goes head first for the one charge that can be brought. His thought is this. There are people in this courtroom who can witness to one thing, and they can witness to the fact that I'm on trial for the resurrection. See, Paul has the whole scene completely under his control now, exactly where he wants it to be. He's broken no law, and they've given him a platform to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. It's the bone of contention with these individuals. He knows the Messiah Jesus has come, and he's willing to die for that statement. So the stakes, catch this, the stakes are incredibly high. He's on trial for his life, and what's his one argument? Jesus came. The resurrection is real. I saw it with my own eyes, and I'm willing to die for that statement. Move forward with me into verse 22, because Felix knows what's going on. But Felix having a more exact knowledge about the way, those are the followers of Jesus, put them off, saying, when Lysias the commander comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion for him to be kept in custody and yet have some freedom and not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. So in verse 22, when it says he put them off, it's one word in the Greek language. It's the word anabello, and it literally means to adjourn the trial. So that's what Felix has done, and he's justified this, this delay by saying, I need more information. So what has he said? I'm waiting for Lysias. I want Lysias to come and bring more information. What has Lysias already done, church? He's already sent his report, right? He sent an official letter saying, this man is not guilty of death, and this man does not deserve to be in prison. So Lysias has already responded. So Felix is not really waiting for Lysias' report. Lysias never came because Felix never sent for him. What he's actually doing is putting off the Jesus issue. He himself has heard the explanation. You'll see it come out again. He keeps pushing it off and pushing it off. So Felix sees to it that Paul's going to be well cared for. He puts him in Herod the Great's praetorium. It's a palace, but it's a jail area. It's where they can hold him prisoner. But he says he's not going to be kept in confinement. He's going to get freedom. That's the word that's used. That means Paul gets to roam around. But he only gets to roam around if he's chained to a Roman soldier. Now, Rome changed the guards every six hours. Can you imagine being chained to Paul for six hours straight? Do you think those Roman soldiers heard the gospel? You talk about a captive audience, okay? For two years, Paul is in prison under Felix's authority. And every six hours, the Roman guards come in and they change the chains. And Paul says, hey, I haven't met you yet. Let me talk to you about Jesus, right? You know that's what's going on. You don't even have to see it there. You just read right into it. So he's got this captive group of audiences. And then we read the last couple verses. We get down to verse 24. And Felix's interest has been piqued about Paul and about Jesus. Look with me at verse 24. But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Now, Felix is married, right? I told you his first wife was Mark Anthony and Cleopatra's granddaughter. But he was kind of changing out and wanted another wife. He went through two more wives before Drusilla comes along. Drusilla is really interesting. History records her, not in the Bible, but extra-biblical, that she was a woman of striking beauty. As a matter of fact, at age 14, 
She was given as a wife to a king of a minor state in Syria. And for two years, she remained married to that king until Felix shows up at a, a festival. And he sees her across the room and he thinks, I'm the procurator of Rome. Nothing is withheld from me. I can have whatever I want. So he engineers a method by which she is officially divorced from her first king husband and given in marriage to Felix. So we see this young girl who's given in marriage at 14, then turned over to another husband at 16. Everybody's struck by her beauty. And at this moment in time where you're at in Acts chapter 24, she's barely 20 years old. And she's got this curiosity about Paul. And she prompts Felix to allow her to talk with Paul about who Jesus is. Why would she be so curious? Because her great-grandfather is Herod the Great. And Herod the Great tried to kill Jesus in Bethlehem as a two-year-old boy. And her uncle, her uncle is Agrippa II. That same Agrippa beheaded John the Baptist because of Jesus. And he mocked Jesus when Jesus was going to be crucified. And her own daddy, Agrippa I, her own daddy had the apostle James beheaded. See, it's in her family line. And she's curious, what is this thing about Jesus? So they come to Paul and they want to hear about Jesus. And for this particular couple, Paul focuses on one specific issue because he needs to tailor craft this to what's going on in their life. Look with me at verse 25. But as he, meaning Paul, was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, Go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. The second time now, Felix comes under conviction. He can't handle it, and he wants to push off the Jesus issue. Why? Because in verse 25, we see specifically not just that he became frightened. That's an English word. In the Greek language, it says he's terrified because Paul begins talking about righteousness. Well, what is righteousness? That's about whether or not we measure up to God's standard. If you fall short of God's standard, you come under judgment. So Paul begins talking about righteousness and whether or not they measure up to God's standard. And then he begins talking about self-control. Well, that really applies to Felix's marriage situation. There seems to be no self-control with this guy. And it becomes too convicting. And he hits the panic button, stops the conversation. I'm not going to talk any further with you about this. See, what you might not know about Roman leaders is that they really, 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 really prided themselves in remaining, remaining stoic in situations like this, always keeping their emotions under control before the public. And Felix can't do that because God's pushing on his buttons. God's got a hold of Felix's heart, and he can't hide it. What's going on there, church? Well, we know this story well enough to understand. The Holy Spirit is bringing conviction to an individual who is a sinner in need of a Savior. And the Holy Spirit has diagnosed, diagnosed the case. And he offers the remedy, Jesus, forgiveness of sin. And it's up to Felix to receive it. So what does Felix do? Unfortunately, what a lot of people do, a lot of individuals hearing this story, when I have a more convenient time, I will call for you. He's procrastinating. Hear this. Procrastination is the thief of souls. Does that register with you? Do you have family members and friends who you'd love to see come to Jesus? 
who don't really understand about forgiveness of sin in Jesus, and they continue to procrastinate. We'll, we'll talk about it another time. I don't really want to go there. No, that's a very private issue. I don't want to talk about it. Procrastination. That, that's Felix. He procrastinates. He says, one of these days, I'll get around to that. One of these days becomes none of these days. Your heart becomes hard, and you keep pushing it off and pushing it off and pushing it off. You know what my Bible says? Same thing as yours. 2 Corinthians 6.2. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. You know, the word behold is kind of biblical, and people kind of freak out about that. What is that? That sounds like old English. Here's what behold is. Pay attention! Okay, that, that's God's language. That's just Mark's interpretation of it, right? Pay attention attention. That's what behold is. Now is the day of salvation. Don't put it off because you and I don't know if we've got tomorrow, do we, church? We're not promised even this afternoon. Can I back that up biblically? Look with me on the screen. What does Proverbs say? Proverbs 27.1, do not boast, boast about tomorrow for you do not know what a day may bring forth. It's Felix, man. He doesn't know what tomorrow is going to bring, but he keeps pushing Jesus away. Go with me to verse 26. At the same time, too, he was hoping that money would be given him by Paul. Therefore, he also used to send for him quite often and converse with him. He's looking for a bribe, right? It's kind of common in the Roman government. So Felix is playing the delay game. Paul spends the next two years in prison. Felix keeps him there like a pet, brings him out whenever he needs to be entertained. Eventually, Felix is removed from office. His ambition and his brutal way of ruling eventually catches up with him, and Caesar demands that he stands before him. He's kind of lost to history. We don't know what became of him specifically. That's the detail, but here's the big picture question. Is your God long-suffering? Is he incredibly long-suffering towards Felix? He puts the Apostle Paul in his backyard for two years. I'm assuming a lot of Roman soldiers came to Christ during that period of time. But Felix has Paul in his own palace for two years and he can't make a decision? Verse 27, but after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus and wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul imprisoned. I know enough about human nature, you do too. There is absolutely no reason to doubt the sincerity by which Felix comes to Paul and asks questions about Jesus. I think it's absolutely genuine. His anxiety is real. His fear of the judgment is real. It's absolutely genuine, meaning this. He has been at the point of conviction more than once. Can you identify with that? Maybe you've got somebody in your life that you can identify right away. You're thinking, I've got a friend that's been right there, and they just cannot decide for Jesus. Maybe you're wrestling with that this morning. Have you kept putting it off and off and off, pushing it away, saying there's a better time? This is what God says to you if that's you, and if, if you've got a friend like that, write this verse down and share it with him. Hebrews 3.7 says this, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts because you don't know if you got tomorrow. In the end, Felix desired to preserve his own way of life, meaning I really like things the way they are. I don't want to change them. Life's good. Why do I need a Savior? 
and keeps pushing it off and pushing it off. He's interested in the details. So catch this. This is a lot like 2016. Felix is informed, but he's not willing to respond to the truth. Meaning for you and I, it's not enough to know the facts about Jesus. We are a factually informed church just by the way I teach. You have a lot of information about who Jesus is. We know a lot. It's not enough to know the facts about Jesus or just to have an emotional response at a church service. You have to believe and trust him as your Lord and Savior. That's what it really requires for us. Scripture says you've got to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that God sent him to be your Savior, and to trust him as your Lord, that he can take away your sins. And as a result of that, there's a change of life. I mean, things change because you belong to Jesus. You just want to stay away from sin. still sin, but we want to keep avoiding it and moving on, growing in our walk with Christ. So I'm going to pray for two different ways this morning. I, I believe there's individuals in the auditorium right now who have never received Jesus as their Savior, and I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that. But I also believe that among this auditorium, there are Christians who are really struggling with surrendering certain issues to Christ things that you're maybe holding on to that you've never given over to him and you procrastinated, saying, I'm just going to keep that one for myself. I'm going to pray first for those who are believers in Jesus, if you would join me in that, and I'm going to give an opportunity for people who would like to receive Christ to respond to that. Let's pray together, church. Father, I count it a privilege to be able to pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ. So I just I lift them up to you right now. Some are struggling with things that they're holding on to that they procrastinated on that have not willingly turned over to you. And even maybe in the midst of this teaching, you brought some degree of conviction again from your Holy Spirit. I ask, Father, that you would meet that person gently right at the point of their need. Because we, are, we already know you're long-suffering, you're merciful, you're gracious. So, Father, I ask that you would remind these individuals who might be struggling with hanging on to something they should have given up that you mean your conviction for our good and not for our harm. That's the truth of your word, Father, and I just want to declare that. Your intentions toward us are always good. We just love you for that. God, I recognize that in this auditorium, although that there might be also individuals who are struggling with whether or not they're even in relationship with you. So I, I just want to lift them up to you right now. I'm going to ask everybody to keep your eyes closed for just a minute. If you sense that as a result of what you've heard this morning, you've never made a decision for Jesus, if you just want to gently slip your hand up right now, I'll pray for you. I see hands going up. Individuals who want to surrender to Christ. I'm just going to talk you through real quickly how to give your life over to Christ. You can just whisper this back to the Father. Heavenly Father, I believe that Jesus is your son. And I believe that he came to die for my sins. Father, I want to make him my Lord and my Savior. Would you enter into my heart and forgive me of all my sins? I want to know a new life in Christ. 
I know that sounds incredibly easy, but Scripture says if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you confess Him with your mouth, you will be saved. So if you just prayed that, congratulations, you have new life in Christ. Here's how I want to pray for you. Heavenly Father, you know who just put their hands up and what's going on in their heart. Individuals who have put this off and put this off who have just now surrendered willingly, who have said, I want to follow Jesus. So God, I ask that your Holy Spirit, as it invades their life, would bring a sense of a desire to grow in their walk with you. That there would be a true passion to understand you and to grow and to learn your word and take this to a whole new level. So don't let it just stop there, Father, with a confession, but surround these individuals with the power of your Holy Spirit. I thank you for those in the previous services who have done the same thing, God, that they have a brand new life in you. I pray for all of us right now, Father, that these things that we've learned this morning, that they will not quickly slip from our mind, that you allow us to to chew on them and and use them for the purpose of strengthening not our own life, but other individuals that we come in contact with. God, I ask for this in the mighty name of King Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said, Amen. Have a great week, New Hope.